This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and traditional consciousness. I am Arturo Archuleta. And I'm Gianna Ramirez. We want to remind you that this program is broadcast on stolen Indigenous land. Tonight, we focus on what is happening here in our state regarding the rising COVID-19 cases as we speak with Dr. David Scrace, Cabinet Secretary of the New Mexico Health and Human Services Department, and a key advisor to Governor Lujan Grisham on our COVID approach. We also speak with Amanda Blackhorse, Indigenous organizer for the Change the Name Unprecedented Victory in Changing Washington's pro football team's name and logo. This evening, we share relevant community events and ways to stay safely involved. And we will bring back our resistance headlines, a short segment that highlights why resistance works. That's right. And we kick off the night with Fight Song by Rachel Platten. This song was chosen by GJ Apprentice Marumita Santana because it emphasizes the importance of staying strong and standing up for ourselves and our people. In November 2018, Dr. David Strace was appointed by Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham to be the Cabinet Secretary for the New Mexico Health and Human Services Department. Dr. Strace is the lead infectious disease expert in our state and provides information for the governor's weekly COVID updates. He offers context and understanding about the rising cases in New Mexico and what people can do to stay safe and healthy. Now we welcome Dr. Strace as my co-host, Arturo Archuleta speaks with him. This is Arturo Archuleta with Generation Justice. I'm speaking with Dr. David Strace, Cabinet Secretary of the New Mexico Health and Human Services Department and practicing internist and geriatrician. Dr. Strace, welcome to Generation Justice. Please tell us more about yourself. Thank you, Arturo. It's great to be here today. I'm a, I've been a physician for a really long time, almost uh, Actually, over 40 years now, now that I think about when I graduated from medical school, I uh, did that in Michigan, also got some training in health administration and moved, and moved to New Mexico in 1998. I've been here ever since. Love the weather here. I love the people here. I love the food here. I uh, chose a career uh, in serving others, really, as a physician, as a healthcare administrator. And then in the last part of my career here, I thought, wouldn't it be great to work for state government as a public servant, really serve the people of New Mexico, and as your listeners may already know, but the Human Services Department administers the Medicaid program, the SNAP, the Food Stamps program, energy assistance, cash assistance, a whole bunch of programs to help lower income people, and all in all, we serve over a million New Mexicans, and so uh, this is a, a dream job for me. I did notice the very first cabinet meeting that I was the only doctor there. That was a year and a half ago. I didn't really know what that was going to mean for me uh, when, until this pandemic broke out. But it's been a real privilege in that uh, manner as well to use all my experiences and uh, my whole career, really, and my long relationship with the governor to 
work uh, side by side with her to help the whole team uh, deal with this pandemic. Oh yeah, thank you. That was, thank you for all the work you're doing as well. What are some of the basics about infectious diseases that we need to understand and why is COVID-19 different from others? Well, infectious, the word infectious means typically that one person can transmit the disease to another. And there are lots of ways that diseases can be transmitted in an infectious manner, like, you know, uh, mosquitoes can bite you and carry an infection from another person. Uh, you know, of course, it could be a contaminated food that could give you a, an infection. But with respiratory viruses like influenza or RSV that we see in kids or COVID, they're generally transmitted from person to person by breathing kind of in close contact. And the water droplets that contain virus particles that get into the air out of one person that go into another person and infect them. We know that speaking softly is low transmission, medium volume is higher uh, transmission, and speaking really loudly uh, is even a higher transmission than that. We also know that singing uh, projects a lot more particles, and of course coughing and sneezing even more particles longer distances. These little water droplets that none of us can see can travel anywhere from about six feet to 18 feet, they can last in the air for uh, an hour to days. And so uh, uh, the main thing uh, about COVID that's different is it's highly infectious and we need to uh, all work together to you know, do the things that will prevent us from not only getting infections from other people, but transmitting infections to others. And because it's so infectious, it makes it different and it, and it, and it has been uh, resulting in the deaths of a lot of older people that we've had to almost shut down the economy in order to make sure that we can contain the virus. What are some of the medical discoveries that we now know about COVID-19 that we didn't know back in March? I think I wanna say everything, like everything we know now about COVID is something we didn't know in March. For example, a lot of national experts said you can't transmit the disease unless you have symptoms. We found that's wrong and in fact, in some studies, maybe 40% of people get COVID infection from another person who has no symptoms. So it's a much bigger deal than we thought. In the beginning, there was a controversy about whether masks worked or not, would protect other people from you or you from other people. And now we know with absolute certainty that masks are quite effective and they can reduce transmission. They can reduce you transmitting to others and they can re reduce you getting the disease from others. So that's exciting as well that we know that now and we can recommend with scientific evidence that this really works. Children, we close schools immediately because with flu, with the influenza, or the, like the H1N1 influenza epidemic we had in 2009, kids were big transmitters of that. Looks like they're not gonna be big uh, transmitters of COVID, and so uh, that's good to know. Uh, we've seen no deaths of people under 20 in New Mexico, although there have been a number uh, of deaths in people 20 to 30 years old but none in uh, people under 20. And, and young children have this inflammatory disorder we see in kids that we didn't really understand at all at the beginning of the pandemic. We also know a lot of, more about our state. We know about the number of cases in each county. We have data systems to keep track of all this stuff that really weren't that put together. Uh, some of them were, but other new ones have been added to give the public more information about what's really happening. All those websites and zip code maps and uh, gating criteria and all the recommendations you see on the website now for DOH, all are brand new things that we came up with as a result of this. So we're learning a lot.
Yeah, and I think it's very important to know, learn about the asymptomatic carriers because you could be carrying COVID and you can never know and before it's too late before you give to someone else. So that's very important. Thank you. I think an example of that that we all probably are familiar with is you may know this, but if you're a healthcare worker, you have to have a flu shot every year. You absolutely have to. And if you don't, you have to wear a mask for six months from like late September through the end of March. And so, and the reason is because we don't want healthcare workers transmitting the flu to other people in that 36 hours where they have it and can spread it, but don't have any symptoms themselves. So very much like influenza in that regard. Why are race, ethnicity, and economic factors important in the tracking of COVID-19? Well, I think there's a lot of answers to that question. But the way I think about it is we know from good national data that some socioeconomic groups, some uh, race and ethnic groups have a higher chance of getting COVID, have more serious complications if they get COVID. And we're still sorting out the various aspects of all of that. But for example, we've all been watching with great empathy and some sadness actually at the explosion, the case rates up in the Northwestern part of the state, which has really been a significant issue for our Navajo uh, citizens. And so that's something that concerns all of us. And sometimes uh, we can learn about a lot about how the disease works by setting its effect on different populations as well. So from a research point of view, it gives us more angles to look at things. And then I also think that folks who are at higher risk, it's good to know that. And so if we study those, that data and can provide some of that data to the New Mexican people and you fall into one of those groups, you can say, gee, I even need to be more careful than I was gonna be when I first found out about COVID. Yeah, I think it's very interesting to see how you have a lot of areas with larger populations, such as Bernalillo County, but they don't have as many cases as in areas with like McKinley County. You know, like, like you said, it comes down to a lot of other different factors besides just population. So I think that's very important to know. What are the thoughts of reopening classrooms in New Mexico, you know, given that we are seeing more of a surge in COVID cases? So there's some studies now, and we, and we said three months ago that hopefully by now there'd be some studies, and thank goodness there have been from Europe. Uh, about school, uh, return to school. And what we're seeing is uh, there's two countries, I think it was Denmark and Finland where folks went, maybe it was Norway, but they went back to school, the kids went back to school. And the third one, Germany, where they went back to school. Finland, and let's just say it was Norway, uh, did great and didn't have any issues. Germany, it caused a huge uptick in cases. And what they found out was wherever that country was at when they started going back to school was the biggest predictor. So if they were having lots of cases and cases were on the rise, that really uh, predicted a uh, significant um, upsurge in cases, more uh, even greater increase in cases when schools reopened. In the countries where cases were stable, uh, there was a, uh, a much le- less of an effect, a more, let's just say more manageable effect. So if schools were to reopen during this fall, what are some differences that we might see in, like, in the way classrooms operate? Well, I think the, the, one of the models that the public education department is looking at is really a, uh, a hybrid model where we'd, we'd start out when we're ready for that. I mean, if we're not ready, it's going to be distance learning, learning from home. If we are ready, I think the current thinking is to go back like about half time. So you go to class two days a week. You do distance learning two days a week. 
until we know that it's not going to have a big impact and then and then go to a full class schedule the other thing that will be different is the classrooms will probably have half as many desks and they'll be more spread out i think everyone in class will be wearing a mask the teachers will be wearing masks there will not be cafeteria things happening no public assemblies or anything like that or you'll be at a distance and that's kind of hard for folks in high school because you know that's when you're close with your friends and hang out with your buddies and you know uh that's not going to be there and so i think the good news is uh that this our younger generation is totally nailed finding every possible way to communicate outside of face to face and so if anybody's going to make it through this i think it'll be our current you know middle school and high schoolers who you know use like there are two basically two apps ahead of their parents in terms of how they communicate with each other and how they can uh, uh, transmit information so i'm hopeful i'm really hopeful about that and i'm hoping that uh, that our school age uh, children will work with their friends to keep those connections close and tight and find ways to share those things that are really important to us even though we're not um, we're not sitting right next to each other at a at a cafeteria table yeah, and like for me as a high school student, it's odd seeing the way we're going to have to adjust, but it's just done, we're just going to have to adapt. That's really all we can do. And we've already kind of began to do that, in my opinion, um, but it's just in case of getting used to. But like you said, I think, I think we can get through it. Yeah, I have a 15-year-old son here at home, your age, and he's going to be a junior next year. But, you know, we talk a lot about what it's going to be like going back to school and when and how and if and. I think the other way of thinking about it is it's like a whole new world. It's a new way. This is just our new way of life. We're going to explore. We're going to create. We're going to work with each other to try to make those connections that keep us going. And, you know, I remember, like, I don't have a lot of connections with the people I used to eat lunch with in high school anymore. But you guys are all going to be in each other's phones forever. And you will be able to keep up those connections. And I think that's a big advantage. Out of all the entire time we've had during this pandemic, what are some decisions that New Metro chose to make that you feel have been beneficial for us during this crisis? I, you know, I'm really uh, feel privileged to work with our governor, Michelle Luan Grisham. She's a very action-oriented leader. She doesn't mind making tough decisions. She's willing to take criticism for her decisions, understanding that, you know, that's just her job. She has to make some of these tough decisions. So I would say number one was closing things down really, really quickly. I mean, our first public health orders came out within a couple of days of our first case here in New Mexico back on March 11th. Uh, schools were closed, I think, only a couple of days later. And you look at other places like New York, where they waited weeks and weeks and weeks, and we saw that huge climbing cases that I think uh, pulling our hospital systems together to work as almost one particularly the big systems during the pandemic was absolutely huge because we were able to pull resources and bring people together to count up ICU beds and figure out how many ventilators we're going to need and how we can expand hospital capacity if that was necessary. And that was something happened early on that I think was a great decision. I think our governor was particularly single-minded about making sure we had adequate testing resources. And if you read anything, you'll see that every state almost is struggling with having enough resources to test. And if you don't have enough resources to test, you don't know who has COVID. 
and you can't keep them isolated and you can't find out who they've been in contact with. And I think those decisions in, in particular were really great. The governor is really focused on data. And so she, she demanded that we produce data for everything. And that created a lot of new information systems about uh, that we, we put together so we, re- we could report this information to the people of New Mexico. And going back to what you said about, you know, the closing of stores and schools, why is it important to continue to enforce more restrictions on businesses at this time? When we open things up a little bit, what we're saying is we're ready to take these extra cases. Because if you open up anything, you're going to have more cases. So we want to make sure we have room in our hospitals and intensive care units for those extra cases. And what happened was we opened up a little teeny bit. And I think in general, people overdid it. They went way beyond. People started going to public events, having big groups over at their homes, getting out and about, lots more contacts, which is the virus's strategy to spread all over the state is to have people to get together as much as possible. So I think we did more of that than the public health order may have allowed. And so that's why we have to be careful. I think we overdid it. And I don't know if you've seen the curve, but it's just almost going straight up again now after that reopening. And so we have to back off to get things back under control. So that's what's happening right now. And Dr. Strace, is there anything else you'd like to add? I'd like to just say one one thing. I think if you're listening today, uh, you can influence others. You can be a role model, an example. You can wear a mask. You can stay six feet from others. You can find ways to have uh, parties with your friends with on Zoom or whatever. I know Zoom is probably like a prehistoric application for high school students, but whatever app you use, like make a life for yourselves with the technology that only you know how to use to its fullest advantage. But then do wear a mask whenever you go outside. Never go inside a public building any building outside of your home without a mask on, keep your distance from people and avoid person to person uh, breathing on each other contact with others until the pandemic's over. Well, Dr. Strace, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today and, and helping us inform the community about ways to stay safe and healthy during this pandemic. You've been an amazing guest and you have taught me a lot about our current understanding of the science behind the COVID-19 virus and what is being done to help our communities. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Grace. The information you shared is so important, especially during this time where there are a lot of worries. Thank you for helping to keep our community informed about how to stay safe and protect others from COVID-19. We know we need to take care of each other. So to remind us of this, we have chosen the song, Lean On Me by Bill Withers. And that is followed by Liberated by Dej Loaf, and Leon Bridges, chosen by G.J. Apprentice, Surantita Santanam. This song explores liberation and communities often ignored and touches on the importance of bringing our differences and experiences together. Always tomorrow, lean on me when you're not
I won't judge who you love or your brown skin. People get liberated. Get up on your feet if you got the feeling. Hey. Get up on your feet. Amanda Blackhorse is Diné and a member of the Navajo Nation. In 2014, Amanda, along with other organizers, successfully challenged the federal trademark of Washington's NFL team. Amanda shares the journey of the fight against the pro football team and recent victory to change their name and mascot. Now, here's Amanda Blackhorse speaking with GJ member Antonio Garcia. This is Antonio Garcia with Generation Justice, and I'm so excited to be talking with Amanda Blackhorse today, an advocate against Native American mascots and one of four American petitioners to win a 2014 case against the racist Washington team mascots trademark. Amanda, welcome to Generation Justice. We are so grateful to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So go ahead and tell us a, a little bit more about yourself. I'm Amanda Blackhorse, Dene, So I'm from the Navajo Nation, an area called Big Mountain and Forest Lake area. I have been working on the Washington name change for about 15 or 16 years started when I was in college. I was going, I was in my undergraduate studies at the University of Kansas. And that's really where I was, you know, brought into this issue and learned more about this issue because it was the same year when the NCAA banned Native mascots in colleges. One of the, the clause with that was that the team, if they had a native mascot, they would have to get approval from a tribe that they are representing. It was a big time. It was a, there was a huge push against native mascots at that time. Um, so that was where I got a lot of my energy from as far as the issue goes. That was when I was about 24, 16 years ago. Um, since then, I've gotten my master's in social work, and I have been working as a licensed clinical social worker for about six years or so. I, I'm primarily a social worker. I'm a mother. I have two children and one on the way. And um, when we do advocate for the mascot issue, you know, that that's always been a part of my life. But I've also worked on other things as well within our community, other advocacy concerning uh, just cultural appropriation in general and um, other issues around land, land rights, water rights, when I'm able to. Thank you for that. So over the last few weeks, as a name change became more and more likely, and now after an official statement from the team owners, what does this victory mean to you as an Indigenous woman? You know, I'm, I'm very cynical when it comes to the Washington team, just because of the way that they treated us all of these years and the way that they treated Native people in general all of these years. I'm just very, 
skeptical of their moves moving forward. Um, but, you know, I am very much um, happy that we are where we're at now, which is you know, we've gotten them to retire their name and logo, which wasn't my doing at all by any means. It was a collective of um, indigenous leaders and you know the perseverance of our elders throughout the years who've been leading us in the right direction and it's been accumulation of lawsuits protests advocacy lobbying letter writing media campaigns so many different things have gone into into the fight and so i actually never thought i would ever see a name change to see it happen today, it's very surreal. So it hasn't really sunk in yet. I'm still kind of shocked by it. Um, but I am also just kind of bracing myself too for what's to come with the team. Yeah, absolutely. You tweeted the other day that it's been a long journey and many sacrifices have been made. Rest in power, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and many others, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Talk to us a little bit about uh, Black and Indigenous solidarity and how the Black Lives Matter movement helped to move this work forward. So I read on, on Facebook somewhere, I mean, and this is when the unrest and the resistance was happening with the Black Lives Matter movement. My family, we were at home just kind of watching everything happen. You know, we're very supportive of the issue and seeing just how people are tired of what's happening in this country, the injustice that's happening, the police brutality that's happening. You know, it made me feel very empowered to see people resist um, in the streets. And we're always taught to be docile um, as people of color. And so seeing the unrest, you know, it, it really signaled, I think, to a lot of people that people are done um, dealing with racism and being respectable about it. You know, people are done with respectability politics and are ready to move into action. And so I think that's something that Native people could definitely relate to. And so as I was watching everything, um, trying to be very mindful of not inserting Native struggles into this moment because I think it's, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. This is their time. This is their struggle. And we need to support that as best as we can. You know, in the past, I, I have hashtagged and have advocated for Native Lives Matter, really being ignorant to the fact that that's co-opting another group's struggle. And so I really learned from that. And I was very mindful about that this time. Um, I think that's very important when we talk about Indigenous and Black solidarity that we understand that first. But also what was really nice to see and was really heartwarming to see within the Black struggle there was that inclusiveness of Indigenous um, issues as well. Angela Davis was one person who was like, you know, we do need to center Indigenous struggles around uh, Black struggles. You know, we have to be mindful of the land that we're on and they're talking about land acknowledgement and stuff. 
So that was really nice to see. This has been a long effort, maybe even decades. Are there any elders or others who you are standing on the shoulders of that you want to honor? Oh, gosh. Uh, I wish I had a list here of people that I could read off of. Um, but definitely, I think in this movement has been Suzanne Harto, who has been, I mean, she's the one who, who brought me into the legal case along with my other co-plaintiffs and like at that time I was only 24 years old so I was very young and wasn't really exactly sure what was going to happen in the future and how long it would take to go through the court process so she has always been you know someone who I credit as far as this movement goes she had been addressing the Washington team long before that and in a time that where it wasn't popular in D.C., and she went through a lot of death threats and stalking and stuff like that during that time. And then also, NCAI has always been there throughout all of the years, and, and that's been Suzanne's relationship with NCAI um, and, and everyone there who has tackled this issue and has passed resolution that the resolution you know, creating some really great work and research around the issue of, of mascots. And then also um, you have NMAI at the National Museum of American Indian, Kevin Gover there at the museum who have also been at the forefront of this, especially being based in, in DC. And then also my lawyers, Jesse Witten, who at Drinker Biddle and Reese at the time, and now they have a they have a different name. It's Gregor Drinker now. And they worked for us for for many, many years pro bono. But at the very beginning it was Philip Moss who um was the original lawyer on the case. Um I was definitely inspired by the story of Charlene Peters as well and her fight with the University of Illinois and um the documentary called In Whose Honor that was something that really like opened my eyes to just how much people are so attached to these names and what they're willing to do and will attack uh, indigenous women and children because they feel so strongly about it. Um, of course, the folks over at the National Coalition Against Racism and the Sports and Media based out of Minneapolis, mostly with AIM, the American Indian Movement, the late Vernon Belcourt um, was, was also someone who energized us out in Kansas City when we were protesting back in 2005. They came out and supported us pretty big. Uh, of course, Clyde Belcourt as well. And then the folks in Cleveland as well. There's been a group of indigenous people in Cleveland who have always fought and addressed the, the issue with the Cleveland Indians. and. Eventually, they were the ones responsible for the retirement of the most racist logo out there, Chief Wahoo. There's the original petitioners in Suzanne's case. You know, there was Bill Means, Dr. Manley Begay, and of course, Vine Deloria Jr., who is no longer with us, but did tremendous amount of work around um, indigenous sovereignty in law and history, um, I remember reading his book, God is Red, and it just really opened my eyes to the issue and about where we are at 
as Indigenous people and how we're looked at and treated and viewed by, by the government. I mean, there's, there's so many more there, but that's, that's kind of just the start. Yeah, there have been a lot of people involved in this fight from the beginning and along the way. But what do you think that this victory means for Indigenous sovereignty um, in the future? Well, I think that when we talk about um, how we're viewed in uh, this country and how mascots dehumanize us, I think that's really what this issue is about, is about the de dehumanization of our, our identity as Indigenous people. Through history, people look at us through this monolithic symbol of people who are the vanishing Indian or um, the noble savage or the fierce warrior. Um, so I think once we can move past a lot of those images and by eliminating them shows the rest of the world that we are people and we're not these symbols. Um, and I think at that point, people can see us as human beings. And I think that could affect a lot of different things. It could affect the way that judges rule in certain court cases concerning sovereignty. It could affect the way that we're seen in politics and the way that funding is allocated for certain programs because, you know, people won't see us as just those poor Indians, which, I mean, there's, they're probably going to see us as, as that anyway, just because racism is so embedded in this country. But when we're stronger and we have more of a stronger sort of identity, I think that we're more willing to to be seen, but also to fight back as well as Indigenous people. We, you know, I think, I, I hope that this will um, liberate a lot of Native people to not take racism and not take scraps off the table from this government. And I mean, not to say that we don't do that, not to say that Native people aren't fighting out there already um, and doing a lot of these things, but, you know, I'm hoping that we, you know, it will, it will bring about some sort of liberation within us. And also, what are the other challenges moving forward? I know you mentioned, like, keeping vigilant about the Washington um, NFL team, uh, but what are the, the challenges and obstacles that you and other organizers are anticipating with the team and its rebranding? Um, I think one of the things is it's not just focus on the Washington team, but focus on other teams as well. I mean, you have the Kansas City team. I mean, you should see some of the stuff they do in that stadium. It's horrific. They have not done anything in, in this entire time. You know, for the last couple of months, we're talking about, you know, all these corporations and companies um, re-examining racism in you know, making moves to and get rid of racist symbols like um, Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, uh, Land O'Lakes. But the Kansas City team hasn't done anything at all to address anything related to Indigenous people. They're kind of just sitting by, just watching what's happening with the Washington team, hoping that we don't focus on them next. They have the tomahawk chop. They allow and encourage fans to wear headdresses and red face. They ha actually have this big drum, they call it the big drum that they um, play. That's what starts the tomahawk chop in the stadium. And people just like, they love that. I mean, 
the fandom around playing Indian is just ridiculous in their stadium. So um, they, I mean, they're definitely next. They need to address it uh, for sure. And I'm glad that the Cleveland team is reconsidering changing their name. Um, the Atlanta team, they just stated that they're not going to be considering a name change or anything like that, but that they are going to re-examine the chalk, which they have been examining now for about a year. When it comes to the Washington team, what we've been demanding in the last few weeks, because we're hearing these rumors of them wanting to use native imagery in the future, uh, we've been on a media campaign and a campaign to ask for a 100% rebrand of their team without any native imagery or names. And we want that commitment from them. Um, and it seems like lately they've just been gaslighting us um, and just giving, you know, putting little statements out there like, we're going to do a thorough review, but don't mention native people. They continue to use the racial slur um, in, their, in their media posts. They haven't talked to any Native groups that I know of who have been fighting the issue for decades. You know, once we have that taken care of completely, the focus will then go on to other teams as well. I think there's about 900 schools still that have racial uh, Native mascots as their name and as their uh, logo. So those also need to be addressed. I actually do have a growing list of high schools and middle schools on our webpage at nomorenativemascot.org. So you can go there, click on Take Action, and you'll see a list there, and you can sign petitions um, from students and alumni who are addressing the issue in their own community. And so I am looking for other petitions as well. So if you know or people listening know of any uh, teams in, in your area that need a change, you know, create a petition and send me the link and I'll put it up there and maybe do a mention on social media about it um, so that people can also take action. Absolutely. Is there any other messages that you have for the community? Um, I think the um, public pressure is super important. Make your voice heard because people are listening. Um, I remember just even a year ago going on social media and the way that people were talking about it was, and the way people usually talk about it is just really hateful, um, very misogynistic, violent, derogatory. Um, and so now I think people are singing a different song nowadays, and that's great. And so we need to definitely add to that. Well, congratulations, and thank you for your organizing and your love for this continued fight. There's so much work that you have done and continue to do every day for our peoples, communities, and nations across Indian country. You're truly a matriarch to look up to, so thank you for that. And thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. For Generation Justice, I'm Antonio Garcia. Thank you so much, Amanda, for the work you have done to stop the use of derogatory names and symbols directed towards indigenous communities and tribes. That is extremely important and powerful. Because of your work and the work of others, change is finally being made, and this victory serves as an inspiration to continue the fight.
Amanda, thank you so much for helping to uphold Indigenous dignity and respect. We chose a song that honors Indigenous liberation. Here is We Are the Hallucination by A Tribe Called Red, featuring John Trudell and Northern Voice. We are the tribe that they cannot see. We live on an industrial reservation. We are the Halusa Nation. We have been called the Indians. We have been called Native American. We have been called hostile. We have been called pagan. We have been called militant. We have been called many names. We are the Halusa Nation. Up next is the resistance headlines with practicum participants Barbara Ramirez and Kyle Gonzalez. Let's get into this empowering segment. Twenty twenty has been the year of so much change, including people risking their lives to rise up against injustice and hate. We know resistance is often life and death, so it's important to stay aware and vigilant. And here at GJ, we want to bring forth that resistance works. So tonight we bring you our revolutionary segment, Resistance Headlines. I'm Barbara Ramirez. And I'm Kyle Gonzalez. We start by highlighting the foundation of Resistance Roundup work published June 14th by our friends at the premier video news outlet, Now This. That's right, Kyle. Now This reported that in the face of uprisings, a supermajority of the Minneapolis City Council has committed to disbanding the city's police department. Way to go, Minneapolis. And another win, the Portland Public Schools superintendent announced that he is discontinuing the regular presence of school resource officers in his district. That's great news. So, can every school district end their police contracts? Looking at you, APS. Thank you again to Now This, the premier video news outlet, for compiling this recent Defund the Police wins. Collaborations and cooperation are some of the strongest tools of resistance. This was demonstrated last week when NAJA, the Native American Journalism Association, NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists, AAJA, the Asian American Journalists Association, and the SPJ, Society of Professional Journalists, stood in solidarity to demand the end of racialized mascot names in media coverage as it continues a narrative of racism and normalizes racial slurs. Que chévere! Journalism associations of BIPOC and SPJ call it out. Speaking of harmful representations, the Onyate High School student body has started a petition to rename the Las Cruces School. This resistance worked. On Tuesday, the Las Cruces School Board held a virtual meeting that resulted in a three to one vote to change the school's name for good. The updated name will be decided in a later meeting. And in a landmark decision, the highest court of the land, the Supreme Court, ruled with the people on DACA instead of with the hate that comes from the current administration. That is great news for the DACA recipients that the Trump administration targeted three years ago. With a 5-4 to four split, the Supreme Court decided that ending this program was not a lawful decision. The Supreme Court is so important, but we must continue to find ways to make sure they do their job. You serve the people, not political parties. Thank you for tuning into our resistance headlines this week. Thank you to all of the individuals, organizations, and groups who have not given up hope. We haven't either. 
Until next time. Hasta la próxima. Thank you, Barbara and Kyle. We all enjoyed the resistance headlines. This segment focuses on resistance and change happening around us. Thank you, Kyle and Barbara, for that fun segment. Now, we have Waiting on the World to Change by John Mayer. This song was chosen by my co-host, Gianna Ramirez. I chose this song because it speaks about today's younger generations wanting to make better change for the world. Sometimes today's youth may not feel they have alone the power to make those changes. So they wait for the world to change until they are in the position to make those big decisions. Even though the youth of today may feel unable to make positive change, when together, the youth can have the power to change the world. It's time for our great community calendar. I'm your calendar host, Uzair Haman. And I'm your other calendar host, Sunny Santanum. Let's see what's happening around our community. What's first, Uzair? The first event of the night is hosted by Indigenous Women Rising. It is an online safety workshop taking place on Monday, July 20th from 4 to 6 p.m. Media literacy and safety on the internet is so important for everyone, especially for activists and organizers. This workshop will explain why that is and provide tools and education on ways people can protect themselves online. Folks can register on Zoom, follow along live on Facebook, or stream on YouTube. You can visit Indigenous Women Rising's Facebook page for more information. Hey, who's there? Do you know what community policing council meetings are? Yeah, those meetings are designed to foster better police-community relationships and to express concerns and give input. Oh, that's awesome. I just heard about these ongoing meetings that people can attend via Zoom. The Valley Communities Policing Council meeting is on July 23rd from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. and is open to the public so anyone can participate. Folks can log on to cabq.gov and check the Community Policing Council page to learn more. People can also call 505-924-3770 for more information. I think that this event is an opportunity to learn about the current response to the rise of police brutality, and it gives the community a platform to voice their thoughts and concerns. Thanks for listening to our community calendar events. I'm Uzair Haman. And I'm Sunny Santanam. Before we close our show, here's You Can Count On Me by Smokey Robinson, chosen by our GJ apprentice, Ariana Cordova. She chose this song because now is a wonderful time to offer support to those around you and love and depend on your peers because of COVID or any challenges you are facing.
We hope you've enjoyed this hour of community action. We'd like to thank our guests, Dr. David Strace and Amanda Blackhorse. We also want to thank our interviewers, Antonio Garcia and my co-host, Arturo Archuleta. Tonight's hour of radio was produced by Kateri Zuni, Roberta Royale, and Barbara Ramirez, with additional production assistance from Lily Lukau and Riazula Alikuze. Thank you to our calendar hosts, Uzer Hamad and Sunny Santana. As well as our existing headlines host, practicum participants Barbara Ramirez and Kyle Gonzalez. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We're also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow our playlists on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the Kon Alma Health Foundation. And of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Our last song of the night is What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. I'm Arturo Archuleta. And I'm Gianna Ramirez. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word. So stay tuned and join us next Sunday at seven o'clock. And remember, wash your hands, wear a mask, and don't be complicit in racism. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some Escalate. You see, war is not the end.